Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. Today, it's our fourth annual movie roundup with film fanatics Glenn Gaylord and Michael Doherty. We talk all about the movies of 2020. I'm not going to plug anything. We're just going to get right into it because it's a long one. And you may want to take a few notes because I left the conversation going, I need to see this, I need to see that, I need to see everything. So here are Michael and Glenn and me. All right, joining me via Zoom, it's Glenn Gaylord and Michael Doherty. They are both film lovers and filmmakers, and Glenn is also the senior film critic at The Queer Review. Uh, it's a really fantastic site. Check it out, thequeerreview.com. And Michael is also the director of the Real Abilities Film Festival. So this is the fourth year in a row we've gotten together to talk about the year in movies, and I think we carry over a little into 2021, just like all of the Oscars and stuff are doing. Both of you guys have different ways of kind of cataloging the year in movies for yourself. So, Glenn, describe how you do it. Well, instead of doing a top ten list or anything like that, I like to do an annual article called Moments Out of Time, which is an homage to uh, Film Comment Magazine. used to do these once a year in February. And I couldn't wait for my dad to bring home that magazine from the office. And I, I couldn't wait for that issue because I wanted to read about films that I had never seen. They would never play in my smaller. Yeah, I Film Comment was very Smarty Pants magazine. It's very, yeah. like, intellectual, cool, like, party. Yeah, and the magazine would pick out scenes or lines of dialogue or their favorite shots or their favorite edits. Anything like that. And these are films that most of them I had never seen or never had a chance to see. Uh, but it really made me think as a film goer uh, while watching films. Like, this movie's terrible, but it's got this amazing moment. Yeah, what's going to stay with me from this movie? Yeah. Exactly. yeah, I love it. So that's kind of what you, you list at the end of the year. Michael, yeah. how do you do it? Do you do a regular 10 best list or do you just list your favorites? Uh, well, I, I, I sort of piggyback a bit on on what Glenn's doing because I like the idea of of picking out m certain elements of a movie because you never tend to remember the whole thing, and I don't think last year was any exception because uh, we were quarantined and we still are for so long that it's hard to remember everything that's been happening because time has lost all sense of meaning. Um, but I have been keeping uh, a. A, a sort of ongoing diary of everything I've watched just to sort of keep myself going. Yeah. Um, and putting it on Facebook, that's that's my usual hub. And I think in part it was done because I just wanted to reassure people who were far away from me that I was generally okay because they could see that I was at least watching movies, which is the thing I love most. Yeah. So, Would you guys do anything to try to make the home viewing experience seem like an event. Like I would get melt duds and eat like movie candy and <laughs> lay in my bed and watch on, a, on my computer. But I would bust out the duds for sure. Um, and my dentist will probably say I have 20 cavities, but um, yeah, that was my, that was my deal. But how do you, did you do anything to try to make it feel like, okay, I'm, I'm focusing, I'm in, I'm going to the movies. Well, my brother did a wonderful, wonderful deed. Um, he, thought it was unfair that I was watching movies at home and writing critiques of them from my kind of small television screen. Right. So he gifted me with this big ass flat screen and a new Apple TV. And it, I turn off the lights 
and just blast it and it immerses me. And then, you know, I may have been guilty of making a popcorn or two, but what my brother did for me was the highlight of the year. That's such an upgrade. That's so sweet. Yeah. All right. Shout out to the brother. Yeah. Yeah. What do you, how do you do it, Michael? Because I know I used to always see you at the WGA screenings in that beautiful theater. And uh, now we're all watching at home. And I've missed it dearly. So I, I I don't know if I did anything different to my place. And by the way, I should say to, to remind the audience, we usually do this at my apartment, but this year I didn't have to clean. There you go. Because we're not all right. We're, we're we're doing it remotely. But I, I I I to be a bit cheeky. I think what what's going to probably end up happening is once I go back to the Writers Guild Theater, I'll want to kind of build a pillow fort. Um, and, and <laughs> they love and that there. The yeah, I love it. Peloforts are the best. All right, so let's dive in. Glenn, why don't you start us off with a moment out of time from a movie from last year or the beginning of this year that you think uh, will will uh, stay with you? Well, this isn't by this is by no means in any particular order, right? And so this is not my favorite movie of the year. What I'm going to start with? We don't need look, numbers. We no, don't, no. We just we don't smell, need, yes. We don't need letters. No. But, uh, and, and I'm actually going to do my favorite at the end because that's what we, I don't normally do that. So. All right, we're so going to build. We're all over the place. I here, love it. Great. So the thing that really stuck with me as a moment from the year mm-hmm. is the big scene, which I'm not going to reveal too much about, but the big scene in The Invisible Man, the one that made everybody lose their shit. Yes. And it was still in theaters then. And so I remember being in a big audience watching this film and without revealing too much, it's a restaurant scene. And, um, there is, there are two people having a fairly tense conversation. Yes. And all of a sudden one person notices something dangling in the middle of the air and then something unexpected and horrific happens. And it is just to me the jaw dropping moment that I'll remember that that, that it's such a great, effective horror scene, and it, it's gruesome and it's startling, and it just will stick with me for years. I agree with that, and that was one of the last movies I saw on the big screen. And I think horror movies have this thing of like, okay, this is an exposition talking scene, and then this is where something goes crazy, and you kind of your nervous system kind of gets used to that rhythm. And then this one threw it all out, and you're looking around going, did that just happen? Did I just see that? Like, it, I agree with you. That's the moment from that movie that will stay with me from that. What did you think of that movie, Michael? I love it. In fact, I, it's worth pointing out, and this is a general comment about the year, is that The Invisible Man is also on my list, and I'll give you my moment in a second. But it's the only, like, gigantic movie uh uh, that I, I'm going to list. It's this this past year was was a year of very small, intimate, almost indie type movies. Um, yes. And I don't know if that speaks to how much the studios and everyone was struggling. Um, but the one powerful thing is that all of these smaller movies were able to to stand up and and be seen and heard. Um, but in terms of the Invisible Man, that really is the moment, um, and it's a testament to how powerful that that one moment plus the entire movie was because I saw it when we were already in quarantine when when it was streaming and when that happened I fell off my bed <laughs> <laughs> which you don't see that quote a lot in 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 reviews uh, yeah yeah you might from now on that's a really good poll that's quote really good yeah 
Um, but my, 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 my other favorite moments from, from that um, in, involve the, the two uh, chase sequences. There's one that opens the film uh, where Elizabeth Moss is escaping from uh, her, uh, a mansion. And then there's another one um, in the Latin second half of the movie where, where there's an escape from a hospital. And what's really cool about the first is that it's so Hitchcockian and tense and you don't know what's going to happen. And it's so quiet, which makes it all, all the more intense. Um, and in the second one, which was, what was cool about it was the invisible man shows up, but his ability to turn invisible um, starts to malfunction, for, for lack of a better word. And so you see this figure coming down the hall in flashes, beating up and killing all these cops as he's coming after Elizabeth Moss, who's amazing in it. Um, and, yeah, I just I, I, I love those moments, and I love her. She's I love that so moment. Good. There are so many cops. It's just they keep coming one after the other to make it so comically absurd, yet it's horrifying. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Thumbs up for Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth Moss too. She's I've loved her since uh, Mad Men, and maybe even before. But like, well, she's crushing it. Her performance in Shirley and in Invisible Man add up to two of the best performances of the year. She's great in both. And to me, nobody flares their nostrils and steals their eyes better than her. Yeah, and I like she, it at yeah, the end her. when she sort of glammed up a little and like kind of femme fatale a little a little bit. It's like, oh, that's exciting. Yeah, I'm into it. Um, but she has this. She has this face that is, in and of itself, is a, an amazing special effect. <laughs> uh, I love that. All right, Michael, why don't you share something else that's on your list? Well, then let's let's go right to Shirley because that's actually on on my list. Josephine Decker's um, uh, sort of, kind of, not really biopic of Shirley Jackson who wrote The Haunting of Hill House and, and The Lottery, and We Have Always Lived in the Castle, which is one of my favorite books, and she's my favorite author. Um, and it's all about this young couple um, that come to stay with her and her husband in upstate New York at, while she's trying to, to write a book. And um, again, Elizabeth Moss, she's one of our great living actresses, and she's amazing in, in this movie because she's playing a... a what could could stereotypically be seen as like a difficult person um but she's dealing with mental issues she's dealing with health issues she's dealing with the fact that she has to write and she's dealing with the fact that her husband is getting more attention than she is um and he happens to be cheating on her and there's an amazing scene where she gets to go to um a, a faculty party at the local university and she ends up spilling wine on this couch which helps her to confront um her husband's mistress um and it's just a, it's just an amazing piece of 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 acting and writing and and directing and i i just love it and josephine decker by the way is also she's one of our great modern masters as far as i'm concerned so what other movies has she done the last one she did was Madeline's Madeline, um, which came out a year or two ago. Cool. Um, and she she specializes in in a kind of like female hysteria and the sort of cross section between being an artist and 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 being mentally ill. Um, and 
different types of reality and things like that. I mean, she's, she's, she really is absolutely spectacular. So I recommend everybody see, check out her movies. I love There's a moment in that movie where, um, Shirley, you know, Elizabeth Moss uses her rage as her superpower and seems to get some genuine glee out of it, which is kind of tormenting her husband a little bit. And I love that sort of flip on the patriarchy that that character does by like, no, I'm actually kind of liking my power. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna lean into this. Yeah. Um, awesome. Give us another moment, Glenn. Um, well, now I'm gonna go. I'm flipping around to sure what I will call you know in in my top three of favorite movies of the year, and that's Nomadland, right? Uh, which I'm happy to report is coming out on Hulu this month. Oh, right uh, on. So, so people will be able to see it after this long period of hearing about it, all the award nominations it's getting, and actually get to see it, which is makes me really happy because. Um, you know, you've referred uh, to Roger Ebert's famous quote of movies being empathy machines. And to me, this movie is a two-hour empathy machine. I love um, it. A moment from it is there's a character named Swanky who Francis McDormand's character encounters on the road in this gig economy where people in their 60s are going out and just working whatever jobs they can get at seasonal uh, opportunities and she encounters this friend named Swanky who is struggling health-wise. And she just sits down and pours out her heart to Frances McDormand, talking about what she's enjoyed out of her life to this point. And what I noticed about it is Chloe Zhao, you know, she's kind of blends documentary and narrative really seamlessly and well. She proved that in her prior films, uh, the writer especially. You just, these are the real people playing these characters. And so there's this weird, interesting mix. And what I realized watching this is that you could have gotten that performance out of Swanky if you were doing a documentary interview, a traditional sit-down interview. However, Chloe Zhao doesn't shoot them like their documentary interviews. And I think that's where she really excels in making you understand that anybody can be an actor if you put them in the right circumstances. Because Swanky's not a real actor, not a trained actor. She didn't know who Frances McDormand was when they were making the movie. Um, but she got this genuine, so moving, heartfelt speech out of her. And it really is just the most beautiful encapsulation of how people can look at their lives. Yeah, and, and it wasn't the only person she got one of those scenes out of. There were several throughout the movie. And yeah. it's, I think it's really a gift because... I don't think you could just tell someone, just be yourself, and I'm going to turn on the camera. People will affect themselves. Like, I just don't think what she pulled off is easy to do with, with those non-actors. And it was scene after scene where you're just like, oh, my God, they're ripping my heart out. Um, she <clears throat> creates those environments. Yeah. And this one, they were caravanning around the country in a small uh, crew, you know, in vans, going around. So I'm sure everything just kind of stemmed from there and became very natural. And it was a, probably a very non-threatening environment. Yeah. Um, Michael, what did you think of Nomadland? Do you have any favorite moments from it? I, I love this movie. Chloe Zhao is, is another one of our modern masters. And The Rider was actually the opening film for the very first Real Abilities Film Festival. So she, she means a lot to me in what she does. Um, and I know how much Glenn loves the, 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 the moment with the swallows. But honestly, it's Francis McDormand shitting in a bucket. Yeah, um, that, I mean that is really truly the moment, and I, I'm I, I'm being again cheeky about this, but 
At the same time, you have a two-time Oscar-winning movie star that puts herself out in that really, really vulnerable position and tells the truth about what that experience is like. Um, and it's, it's gross and it's weird and it's uncomfortable, but it's very, very human. Um, that's my cheeky answer. My real answer would be that at the end of the movie, um, she reunites with one of her fellow travelers who, who utters the, the line, uh, I'll, I'll see you down the road, which has to do with a person who, who, who died. And it, 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 I don't know if it would have hit me as hard if I had seen it in a theater and everything was normal, but it, I, I, I was sobbing as soon as I heard it because I'm by myself in my apartment. I haven't seen people in months and we don't know when we're going to get out of this, but there's this idea that, well, you know what? We will be together again at some point. And I, I, I think that that's a really beautiful, simple truth. I love that. I, um, I love the landscapes of it. And the vistas, there was such a beautiful way of capturing the United States. And I, I love that another film, you would see these scenes set up and you would think, oh, shit, there's, somebody's going to rob her. She's going to lose this. Something's going to go horribly wrong. Something's gonna, you, you, like any other movie, it feels like it, they would have punished people at every turn for conflict. And well, uh, uh, not... Another amazing thing about that performance and what you're saying is is there's another moment involving plates that get broken. Yeah. Which is this horrifying moment for, for Frances McDormand. But the beautiful thing is, is that she... <clears throat> she picks herself up and she glues them back together. Yeah. And I and watched it and I... Said. I think a lot of people like our age are kind of low, going, okay... How am I going to retire? What, you know, I think there's a lot of uncertainty for a lot of people. And I watched this and I thought, well, if I did that, it wouldn't have to be that bad. In other words, it's sort of like the things that we fear, you know, our lives ending up as, or you would, if you would describe this character's journey to somebody, they would be like, oh my God, that would be the worst. And this movie says, maybe it's not, maybe it can be okay. And maybe in some ways it can be beautiful. And I found that. Uh, a comforting message and a beautiful message. Um, yeah, actually didn't come to a moment where I cried because I was actually crying from beginning to end. Ah. The entire movie I watched through tears, the the music used, it's not really considered a score because it's pre-existing, really captures how I felt watching it. And typically that would be a sappy score. And this is a piano-driven orchestral score, yet I thought it beautifully captured this kind of optimistic view of a struggle. Yeah. That's what the movie feels like to me. It's like, this is not, you're not supposed to feel bad for her because she doesn't feel bad. She's okay. Yeah. And even things like there's a scene where she's working in an Amazon fulfillment and people have strong feelings about Amazon and you know, what that, what that means for all of the other businesses and all of that stuff. And yet it was so full of humanity that when I see Amazon now, I think of those people in that place and the way they kind of helped each other. And like, I don't know. I just feel like her lens pictured everything in its full dimension, and and, and with a with a hint of optimism and a hopefulness that I I've kind of taken with me from seeing it. So uh, I no longer scream at Amazon trucks on the road, uh, <laughs> which is good. Um, Michael, do you have another one on your list? 
So to continue uh, with the empathy machine, uh, my perfect example of that very notion is a documentary called The Painter and the Thief, um, which was is on streaming on, on Hulu, I believe. Notice and I'm writing a lot of things down because I missed a lot of these and now I have a to-do list. Well, this one is, 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 is definitely to-do. Um, it's because it's an amazing documentary that you almost won't believe is true, but it is. Um, but it's about a Czech painter named Barbara Kisselkova, uh, who is living in Norway and she gets some traction with her art career and gets a, a showing in a gallery. And some of her paintings are stolen by a man named Carl Bertie Nordland, uh, who is a heroin addict and something of a gangster. And, um, instead of, immediately tracking down the paintings she tracks down the guy and ends up forming a relationship with him uh platonic um in which they learn to support one another in all of these beautiful amazing ways and it explores how much we can forgive and and be empathetic towards one another because they come from such different lives and he is in the eyes of the the state a, a really terrible person but she doesn't see him that way and the moment for me is when she decides that he wants that she wants him to model for her um which he obliges and does actually several times over but the first painting that she does of him, when he sees it, he breaks down because he is seen finally through someone else's eyes that are warm and caring and, and not hateful. Um, and it's, it's a beautiful thing about how we see each other and, and how we, we, we show up for one another and how art can often help facilitate that. And I, I love it. I give it the highest possible recommendation. I love it. Glenn, did you see it? I, didn't, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it yet. It's up on my queue. Um, I love it. I knew Michael was going to uh, talk about it today, and I just didn't get to it. And it's it's real. It's it's next. All right. What? Give us another moment out of time. Well, I'm going to stick with while while we're talking about documentaries because this was a fantastic year for them. Uh, we saw. Uh, I'm not going to talk about all of them, but I'll just mention a few right now that I really liked, which was Assassins, which is about the two unsuspecting women who unknowingly killed Kim Jong-un's brother at an airport. Oh, wow. And it through their trials and tribulations, gripping. Uh, a Thousand Cuts, which is set in the Philippines during election season, and how this journalist takes on uh, their authoritarian president and nice. risks her doing so, gripping as well. But uh, far and away for me, the best documentary of the year is called Collective. Uh, and I like the Bee Gees documentary, but Collective really took it for me because it's a documentary uh, set in the time after the uh, famed Bucharest Club fire of 2015. Right. Where a, a daily sports newspaper uncovered corruption in the healthcare system where a lot of people from that fire unnecessarily died of minor burns when they were in the hospital. And so it traces how this sports gazette becomes, they become national heroes for uncovering this corruption. It 
takes down the Romanian government. Wow. You have to replace the government with technocrats who can try to help solve the problem. And it's told without narration, without sit-down interviews. It literally plays like the movie Spotlight. You're in the middle of a journalistic thriller, but it's actually happening. Wow. And narratively, it's so propulsive and fascinating. And without giving too much away, because there's a lot of story that happens while you're watching this, uh, one of the technocrats um, has a phone call with his father. And the technocrat is realizing solving this problem is going to be much harder than he initially thought, almost impossible. In fact, impossible. And the father gives him this fatherly, loving advice, telling him which direction he should probably head into just for his own mental health. And it's just, it hits you right in the heart at the end of this movie. You're watching these people that you think are heroic and you watch them struggle and you get to this point where you have to question whether there's any hope or not. Uh, where it looks like all is lost. Um, um, yeah. There's a lot of loss. All right. <laughs> Share another one from your list, Michael. Uh, well, to, to hop on to uh, another kind of health crisis, um, there was a movie called Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, uh, uh, directed by Eliza Hittman and starring, which I believe is the best performance by an actor this year, um, in Sidney Flanagan, who plays a teenager uh, who gets pregnant and goes about trying to secure an abortion. But she's a poor kid from... Uh, rural Pennsylvania and has to go into big, bad, dark New York City in order to get it. Um, it's a very quiet movie. It's a very sad movie. Um, she travels with her cousin um, uh, as her companion to do it. And it's so moving in the way that this kid puts one foot in front of the other to, to get this done. And the most powerful scene, probably of anything I've seen, uh, this year, apart from the my number one movie, which I'll talk about at the end, is the intake scene in which she sits down with uh, a, a nurse. And it, that's where the title comes from, because it's a uh, multiple choice questionnaire. And you realize the extent of the damage and trauma um, that this, this, this girl has gone through at, at the hands of men in particular but also at the, the, the larger system that, that makes it impossible for, for women to adequately take care of themselves. Um, and it's, it's an absolute crime against humanity. Um, but the, one of the most powerful things about the movie is that, that, she, that Eliza Hittman doesn't, doesn't politicize it. It's just a, it's a human drama. I mean, the politics are there, obviously, but right. it's really just human drama. And, it, and you see on Sidney Flanagan's face the, 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 the amount of stress and pain that, that women have to go through just, just to do this. And I just was was knocked out it was another one where i saw it in quarantine and i and i just like fell off my bed it was so overwhelmed by it yeah it's on my list i haven't seen it glenn have you seen it yeah and i agree that is my moment from that film as well and what i i mean i, I agree her performance is incredible however i also want to add that eliza hitman's writing in that scene also uh bears mention because this in a traditional film would be an exposition dump of the scene 
You're asking questions of your main character and getting all the background through a multiple choice question. Right. However, in watching that scene, she pairs it back so much that you get so much from what's not said in the movie, more so than what actually is said, because you learn about past traumas that this character has just by the way she responds to the question or the look on her face from a question. It's, it's an incredible piece of filmmaking, that moment. Yeah. Um, give us another moment. Out. I haven't seen that one yet, but I, I, I definitely want to. Give us another moment out of time, Glenn. Uh, Promising Young Woman. It's a very polarizing film. It's a love it or hate it situation. I happen to love it. I've watched it six times now. Wow. Um, and I will defend that movie to the death because there are have people have come at me from my very stellar review of it. Positive review, not stellar. Right. But uh, um, who had just said how much they hated it. And I went point by point through somebody the other day and said, I'm going to actually take you down on this. Wow. And, I defended every single point that this person hated. What was and their... Did they have an overall premise or... or, or it's it's hard to argument? discuss without giving away the okay. twist in the film. Sure. Uh, but uh, there were credibility issues that this person had. And what about issues? What about this? How did this happen? How come we didn't know this? And I would defend it. i say, actually, here's what we learned from that moment. Or right. we're not supposed to know. This is something you're supposed to figure out yourself. Yeah. Um, What's your moment, moment from it? This increasingly dark, dark film that is so candy-colored, it's so digestible, and, you know, it's filled with, you know, pop songs and pinks and, you know, powder blues um, and, you know, knockout costuming uh, is the big set-piece scene set in a pharmacy uh, between Carrie Mulligan's character and Bo Burnham's character um, as they... um, are kind of at the pharmacy to buy condoms because they're going to finally do it. Right. When Paris Hilton's uh, hit song, Stars Are Blind, comes on, and they have a falling in love montage in the middle of the pharmacy where they're popping open uh, potato chip bags and they're both singing along to the song. And then it kind of intercuts with other scenes from their uh, closeness and getting together and hanging out. Uh, And it's... My, by far my favorite musical montage of the year, and I love a good one, and this does give you this ray of hope in a story that you know is not going to sustain that. They've made Paris Hilton worth it. It was yeah. worth us having Paris Hilton for that scene. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It was charming. And Bo Burnham, who's also a filmmaker, is so charming um, yeah. and winning in the movie. Um, Michael, what did you think of Promising Young Woman? I... I... I basically think the world of it. I think it's a, a bravura piece of filmmaking. I, I'm, I'm not as on on its side as, as Glenn is because I do think that there are, are certain directorial issues that I, I had issues with, particularly the ending. Um, but uh, for the way that it deals with its subject matter and the, for the way that it constantly keeps the audience off balance as to what's going on and why and and who is to blame and who is not to blame. Uh, I mean, it really was very nimble and very sharp. And there are two moments that I would have picked. Uh, One is this conversation that um, Carrie Mulligan's character has with Molly Shannon, who plays the mother of... 
uh, Carrie Mulligan's friend who is the one who's been victimized. Um, and you, you, you've been watching, as Glenn described it perfectly, this candy-colored world, and then suddenly it comes slamming to a halt. And you're given this very real, very quiet, very naked scene um, about these two grieving women and how they're both dealing with that. And I thought it took a lot of guts to, to, to put that in there uh, and to put that level of, of reality into it. And, I, and so that, that was one of my favorites. And the other one would be, and I'm not going to say much about this, but Glenn, you, you'll know what I'm talking about, is that it's when Alison Brie, who plays um, a former classmate of Carrie Mulligan's, hands a phone to Carrie Mulligan. And what happens right after that, uh, which was pretty, pretty, pretty gut punching. Um, but yeah, amazing movie. And even in its flaws and controversy, that makes it all the more prescient why, why it needs to be seen and talked about and dealt you know, with. I actually wouldn't have liked the movie as much were it not for those two moments you mentioned. Because those gut punches, without them, I would have thought this movie was probably a glib sort of shallow film. But those two moments, though, earned it. Earned it, to, it basically went to a different level because of those scenes. Yeah, I really hope quarantine and COVID is all over by October because I think there are going to be a lot of gay guys in drag as Carrie Mulligans. I think that's going to be like a costume. Her final look was so iconic, and the the hair color and the outfit and the I feel like that can be a Halloween costume. Is my point? We're going to go as the sexy nurse. Yes, of course. But uh, the interesting thing about that movie and why I think Emerald Fennell is such a great new director is she even she, she knew what she was doing and she manufactured so many things that she intentionally cut the trailer for this film to lead you in a direction that the film actually doesn't go. And she wanted you to think that you're going to watch like Ms. 45, a rape revenge thriller. And this movie is decidedly not that it doesn't go in that same direction the way you think it does yeah it will and she plays with you even in the opening scenes where you're thinking that you know you see what you think is blood and she's really playing with you yeah and i like for her to draw you in with exploitation and then sort of sort of knock you out with sometimes a too didactic uh lesson but i Thought like one of the most didactic scenes happens at a university, so I forgave it because the discussion does get didactic in universities. Yeah, the only thing that bugged me about that movie is she worked at a place where she never worked. She just sat there, and the boss was <laughs> fine with it. Nobody ever married any ketchups or did any side work or rang anybody up. She was just hanging out at her coffee place, which was a. I'm going to disagree with you for a second. Okay, because. A lot of people have complained that Laverne Cox's character, who plays the owner of that coffee shop in her yeah. boss, um, is only there to prop up our main character and has no story arc or anything like that. And I really disagree because I think Laverne Cox's performance is really shrewd. That character is on to Carrie Mulligan. She knows the score. She knows something is up. Why are you working here? Why don't you take a different job? I think you should. Yeah. Like she's really Would I kill you to take out the trash? She's quietly pushing this narrative. Yeah. Uh, and and you know that she knows what's happening and is trying to finesse it just as awkwardly, not as awkwardly, but 
just the way her parents are trying to coax her into a different way of life. And same with Molly Shannon. So I do think that there is something more going on than just she doesn't work and she gets away with it. Right. And she just sits there and talks. Laverne Cox knows. She knows she's doing her job. All right. I I hear you. I think that's a good take. Um, I told you I would defend this movie. I love it. No, I'm a big fan of it. Um, uh, Michael, do you have another movie from your list? Uh, yes, and so from the, the horrors of sexual violence, let's take a sharp left turn into the, the glories of the insertion lifestyle with Butt Boy. Butt Boy? <laughs> yes, which is probably the best 90s film noir homage about a guy who's sticking large, dangerous objects up his ass, uh, who gets involved with a drunk... Uh, detective on the on the trail of a missing boy that I've ever seen. Why um, is this movie not on my radar? It's, I, it's streaming on Amazon Prime. Wow! All right. Okay. And I say to everyone: run, do not walk, and dive into this. So to speak. And I'm going to proudly, proudly take ownership and say that I'm the one who told Michael to watch it. I love it. Do you have a, a moment from it that you love? Oh, I have several. Okay, I have several. But really, it's, it's, and I, I can't really describe much about it because the less you, like, I gave you the premise. Right. Go, go, go right. on with that. Because I can tell you that the, the missing boy is discovered. And I won't say how, I won't say why, I won't say in what state he's in. Okay. But he is discovered. And then the movie goes on for another 20 minutes. In a way that you cannot honestly believe, but yet sounds completely inevitable and fits with the whole movie. All right. Um, and there's one read you can do it. You can see it as a completely serious, well done, very beautifully shot film noir, and it's also fall on the floor, freaking hilarious. I love it. All right, and and Glenn, you're a fan as well. Oh yeah. Did it make yeah, your I mean, moments I mean, out of time? Title, I think the title is smarter than it lets on because it's not just this crazy title that's literally telling you what's, what's happening there. Yeah. Um, and it's a great exploitation title, but it's also about this main character who is emasculated and he is inert and he just is dead inside. Um, and so it's a really interesting journey of that character as well. Not just all the nineties tropes and all the, uh, you know, exploitation tropes that it plays with. All right, cool. Sounds like uh, definitely going to go to the top of my Amazon watch list. Or um, the bottom. No, or the bottom, bottom, so to speak. Uh, what's your next uh, moment out of time? Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Yes. I think this has been an incredible year of um, adaptations of stage plays uh, successfully adapted to the screen. Uh, we have examples like The Father, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, One Night in Miami, uh, where they don't open them up too much. Right. Kind of stick to that the, the one main set for a lot of the films and, uh, and yet found cinematic ways to tell the story, ways to shoot the characters and the dynamics between the characters really well. Um, and... The moment from Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, and there's a ton from this movie, because I've, I've also watched this three times. I, I think it's an incredible piece of work, is um, something that was added from the play. It wasn't originally in the play. But there is this kind of um, 
I call it Chekhov's door that's introduced in the first act. There's this locked door in this recording studio and Chadwick Boseman's character keeps trying to open the door and it doesn't open, it doesn't open. In the play, in the stage version, it never pays off. Uh, but in the film version, uh, George C. Wolf, the director, um, has found like this wonderful way to give us an incredible visual analogy of what this film is trying to say. And without giving anything away, I just looked at it as, you know that saying when one door opens, one door closes, another door opens? Yeah. Um, this is the opposite. Right. <laughs> and so Sometimes uh, God just closes a door. Sometimes when one door closes, another door closes. <laughs> exactly. Calls it a day. Uh, all right, cool. <laughs> yeah, I remember that moment, too. It's, it's pretty effective. And um, great performances in that. In that. And mm-hmm. I thought it... I felt that it was cinematic, even though it was a play that, that they had adapted. It had a cinematic feel to it. Um, yeah. Michael, any thoughts on that movie? I do, and then I want to actually go right in, after I tell you my, my thoughts about it, go right into what my next pick would, because it it links up. Love it. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I love this movie as well. I, I'm dying to see it on a big screen. Uh, because the cinematography and direction are so beautiful and and luminous and glowing. And when I first noticed that, I thought, "This is this? Does this look fake? Um, why does everything look so Hollywoodish?" And then I thought, "Well, because the black community deserves it. They 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 deserve to have something glossy." Um, and old-timey um, um, given to them. Um, and I think that that's, that's a beautiful tribute in a sense. But yes, Chadwick Boseman, who I, I hope will be given a, a, his posthumous Oscar for this movie, is amazing. And he has this thing about being very sort of carefree and, and effervescent through the first third of the movie, I think. And his older um, compatriots in the band are, are getting more and more annoyed with and fr- frustrated with him. And why is he playing toward, you know, you know, the white masters, so to speak? And then Chadwick Boseman turns around and gives a monologue that's basically done in, in close-up about smiling at white people and something that happened to his mother and how he dealt with that. And you realize the depth of pain and rage that he has that never gets completely resolved. Um, and it's just, it's so, it's so, so powerful and so disturbing and, and so moving. And he just knocks it out of the park. Um, along with my next pick, which was, he has a much smaller part in, which is Spike Lee's The Five Bloods. Um, which is Spike's uh, Vietnam War corrective to to make accounts of of the black soldiers that often go ignored uh, for having fought in that in what they called the American War. Um, and there's this amazing moment in that where uh, Delroy Lindo, who's playing this Trump supporter, that you kind of actually kind of sympathize and 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 kind of root for. Um, in spite of yourself, um, is off in the jungle, and he's he's doing one of these famous um, Spike Lee direct-to-camera uh, moments in which he gives a speech about how he can't be killed and he won't be killed. And when he's done with the speech, and this is the moment really for me, when he's done with the speech, the camera floats up 
towards the canopy of the jungle and you see all of this light coming down and then it pans back down to Chadwick Boseman covered in that heavenly light. And Spike Lee insists that that was not an effect, that it just happened that way. Um, but what, <laughs> what an amazing tribute to, to an amazing actor um, who was taken too soon um, and deserved a lot better. Um, but it's just, just, it's a terrible, terrible loss, but I'm glad that we have things like movies to sort of memorialize people, whether we mean to or not. So, anyway. Yeah, and the fact that he pushed through and, and, and completed these movies when he was dealing with everything that he was dealing with. And yeah. really dug deep. I mean, yes. these are incredible performances. And I just want to circle back to Ma Rainey's, uh, the screenwriter, Ruben Santiago Hudson, who adapted uh, the, the, the play. He's, he's the one who came up with the reveal of the door. So uh, the director, George C. Wolf, did an amazing job, and I wanted to credit the screenwriter. I love that. Did you just, like, remember that, or did you Google it during our little chat? Like, that's awesome that you tied that little knot up. Yeah, I'm not going to tell you how I figured that out. All right. <laughs> Magician um, never tells. <laughs> right. All right, Glenn, give us another moment out of time. Uh, well, we were talking about adaptation, so I'll go right into The Father. Um Anthony Hopkins, Olivia Coleman. Uh, there have been a lot of dimension narratives this year with Viggo Mortensen's uh, film Falling, uh, with a horror film called Relic, uh, and uh, also Supernova. And I think the, the, the king of these narratives is the father. The rest of them pale by comparison. Uh, and uh, Florian Zeller, who wrote the play that this was based on, uh, who co-wrote the adaptation for the screen with Christopher Hampton, um, tells the tale of uh, Anthony Hopkins' character, named Anthony, who is uh, in, the, in, in the challenging stages of dementia. And we see it from his point of view. And I've never seen it told this way before. Uh, you know, one could sort of cite uh, similar narratives, like the diving bell and the butterfly, where you see it from that, lead character's point of view. This doesn't quite go that far because it's not a showy film. Mm -hmm. And that to me was showy, visually very showy. This is very plain and stronger as a result of it because it has lots of interesting visual shifts in it and tonal shifts in it that are done so slyly that you're not going, wow, this is amazing filmmaking. But when you look back at it, you sure do appreciate that. Yeah. And, um, you just slowly watch Anthony Hopkins' character get more and more and more confused. And the moment at a time, which again, I'm not going to spoil too much, um, had me blubbering, ugly crying. Like, And I've watched it three times to think, was it only affected that first time? Nope, cried every time. I love how committed you are to figuring out, like, okay, I'm going to give this another watch. That's that's good. Well, when they're, like, when they're my favorite films, I do like to watch them more than once. Yeah. And this is definitely one of those films where I wanted to see, like, how did it earn that emotional moment? And is it only a one-time thing? And nope, it's a testimony to not only Anthony Hopkins and Olivia Coleman, who give very compassionate performances, and Anthony Hopkins is at the top of his game. He, this is a ferocious performance. Um, is um, Olivia Williams, who is also in the film, who I remember all, you know, from Rushmore, for example. Um, and she has this really soothing, calm presence during this big scene with Anthony Hopkins. 
and the, the, the scene would not have been as effective without the way she uh, portrayed her character. And, and she's an incredible anchor to this amazing, one of the best moments in film I've seen in years. I love it. Awesome. Did you see that film, Michael? I haven't, and it's it's another one that's high on my list. But what's what's and what's interesting about that is that my first impression upon seeing the trailer and reading the the, the synopsis and and knowing that you never know what you're going to get with Anthony Hopkins these days. He's either be brilliant or he looks like he's just phoning it in. But it's the type it's the type of thing that had it gone badly. Glenn and I would be normally like complaining about this. So the fact that he's over the moon about it actually does mean something to me awesome. and, and makes me more interested in, in seeing it. Yeah. It's quite a performance. I saw it the other night. It's, it's great. Um, yeah. and I love the way it was shot in the, in the house and I, it had, it was artful for sure. Very gentle sleight of hand, that movie. Yeah. And the, the director is the playwright. Which I think is interesting because a lot of people don't necessarily. This are sort of two different skills in a way, and yeah, I, he brought it to life beautifully. Um, yeah, it's give, his feature debut. Amazing. All right, give us another uh, movie from your list, Michael. Well, to continue with the life of the mind, let's go to Charlie Kaufman's "I'm Thinking of Ending Things," uh, which is one of the more disturbing and surreal breakup movies uh, that, that one could ever hope to see. Um, it's about a woman played by Jessie Buckley, the amazing Irish actor, uh, who is, she is going up to meet her boyfriend's uh, parents, and he's played by Jesse Plemons, and the parents are played by David Thewlis and Tony Collette. And it's it's a lot of back and forth and inner monologues about why she shouldn't be with him and 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 the the meaning of where she is in her life and what's going on, um, and somehow there's a high school with an old janitor that's involved. And you're never quite sure why that is until the very end. And then all of a sudden, Oklahoma gets in, invoked. And that is my moment, which is they include the ballet from uh, Oklahoma, in which two characters who look like Jesse Plemons and Jesse Buckley uh, dance through this high school. And you're never entirely sure why, although it is actually giving you little plot details here and there. Um, but it's, it's so beautifully rendered and inexplicable. And, and it says a lot about delusion and why that is often necessary in order to survive, which is, I know is, is in part, I think, is uh, a big thing for, for Charlie Kaufman. Um, and I just, I, I just love this movie from beginning to end. Well, knowing that there's a dream ballet, I'm going to bump that up on my must-watch list. I'm all about a dream ballet. Um, Glenn, what did you think of the movie? I loved it. Um, I um, have watched this multiple times as well. I just think it's uh, intricate. It's fascinating. It's uncomfortable. It's dreamlike. It's scary. Uh, and you think you're watching a horror film, but it's not really. But it's scary in an existential way, I think. Right. And I love this moment where Jesse Buckley and Jesse Plemons are driving to the parents' house for dinner in the snow. And um, Jesse Buckley's about to recite a poem to Jesse Plemons, 
and there's something wrong in the relationship and Jesse Plum's voiceover is saying, I'm thinking of ending things. Like, I think this, we're, we're done here. Um, and you know she feels that way, but he doesn't quite get it yet. And she turns around towards the back seat of the car to look out the back of the window and looks right at us in this really weird cut where she just kind of looks right at us and then turns around and starts reciting this poem to him. And it was almost like it's like, here we go. Like, this is the beginning of the end for me. Like, I'm dreading this or whatever it is. It was just an incredible visual moment for me. She gave you a little flea bag, a little touch yeah. of the flea bag. Yeah, uh, she bagged it. I here's my thing with Charlie Kaufman. I I think I hosted this movie line behind the camera awards thing in like the mid two thousands, and he was either getting an award or being a presenter, and he had that movie out that was spelled like Sinodoki or but. It, do you know what I'm talking about? Synecdoche, New York. Yeah, Schenectady, New York, right? Is that Synecdoche. Synecdoche, New York. Um, and I pronounced it wrong. And then when he got up there, he, like, made me feel bad for pronouncing it wrong. So I'm always a little... But he's justified. And in my defense, I was going to find out exactly how to pronounce it. And then the head editor of Movie Line, Ann Volick, God bless her would do these, she would do a speech in everyone and then she would rehearse and take up all the time. And it was just like something everyone had to get through. So long story short, I didn't get a t- chance to go and make sure I knew how to pronounce that. I forgot. It got to the point. I blew it. He made fun of me. And now I don't really seek out his films as much. Although I did go see Eternal Sunshine the other night at the drive-in. So I'm going to watch the movie and get over my own shame for doing a bad job in that moment at that thing. So there's that. Yeah, I don't know. I think Charlie Kaufman could go straight to hell. Exactly. But I knew it. It's that thing where you knew you were meant to do that and you didn't and you screwed up and, and it's, it bit you in the ass. But um, I'm glad you liked it. I do have the DVD. I'm going to watch it. All right. Um, whose turn is it? I, I kind of got lost in my own shame. Uh, Michael, go ahead and give us another uh, another on your list. Okay, uh, another of mine would be The Climb, uh, which was a late watch for me. Yes. Um, I just saw it um, recently, um, but it climbed very, very high, so to speak, uh, on, on my mountain of movies. Um, and it's about these two guys who have been lifelong best friends and one is sort of a, a a wet noodle pushover, and the other one is just kind of a horrible, horrible guy who <laughs> wants to take everything from people and be hurtful. And he he's very lost, so you feel a little bit of sympathy, but he always manages to then then subvert that in the next moment. Um, but it's this very complicated relationship um, between these two men that felt very, very, very real to me. Um, and the moment would be the opening scene, which is actually a nine-minute-long continuous take as these two guys ride their bikes um, up a mountain that I believe is part of the Tour de France. I think that was the insinuation. Um, and one is talking about getting married the, the the wet noodle guy is talking about getting married and then the the jerk has some things to admit to his friend that kind of upends the whole thing and it's hilarious and it's 
painful and it's and it's another one of these bravura pieces of filmmaking and acting yeah i saw it recently because glenn said you have to see the climb so i watched it probably a week or two ago and it has a number of scenes with these amazingly long takes and usually you'll see those in like an alfonso Cuarón movie where it's a drama or a sci-fi or something you don't often see them used in a comedy in this way where you're going, oh my god, I can't believe this shot. Oh my god, that's funny. That 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 felt fresh to me, and um, and so I, I loved that 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 it was a comedy where you you kind of marvel at the filmmaking at the same time that you're laughing at some of the character stuff. And I also loved that you talk about the dynamic between the two men. They're kind of that thing of like you just have to accept people for who they are. Sometimes, you know, the guy at the end is still kind of more of a jerk than the other guy. But, you know, you just kind of, these are the people in your life and you, and you love them uh, in spite of, in spite of themselves in a way. Um, what did you think, Glenn? Oh, I loved it. I mean, uh, you know, there's that other chapter. There are seven chapters in the film. There's another chapter where the scene is 15 minutes long and starts out outside a house and goes inside and outside again. Amazing. Changed. And, you know, it goes on for like 10 or 15 minutes. And you get so much information out of those moments. And overall, though, it's it's kind of what you said. The movie's called The Climb because you're always struggling uphill when you're in a toxic relationship with somebody. And this is incredibly toxic. And yet they kind of need each other in a weird way. And yeah. it's like, they're, they're kind of like the male versions of Eddie and Patsy from AbFab for me. They're just, they're, there's so much wrong there, yet they just kind of need each other. Yeah. Like, you don't necessarily want them to, like, not be friends anymore. That doesn't feel satisfying. So... Oh, I, I do want one to kill the other. <laughs> that, that would be more satisfying. Yeah, it's it's really good. And I, and it was a lot of fresh faces for me, I, except for George Went was probably the only person I recognized in the movie. Um, and just, just really good. Um, give us another moment out of time, Glenn. Uh, first cow. So Kelly Reichert is a filmmaker who runs hot and cold with me. Right. However, she's been pretty consistent through her career at toning down the speed of a film. Uh, you know, her films are very slow burns. Uh, and oftentimes they don't have very propulsive narratives. Uh, the, the last one that I can remember of hers that actually did have a screw-tightening narrative was Wendy and Lucy starring Michelle Williams about a, um, this woman and her dog, her missing dog. Right. Or only did keep her dog. Um, first Cal to me is the first one since then that have this really kind of tense narrative, but done in her very calm, sort of even style. Um, it's about uh, uh, two men who meet in the Wild West of the late 1800s in the Pacific Northwest somewhere where they are, um, uh, they come together to start a business of making donuts for all the other traders that they are traveling with along the road. And they, they sit at a little marketplace that's kind of just like a muddy pit and they fry up these donuts for them and they start making money. And then in this village, um, one of the wealthier people, um, played by Toby Jones really well, um, buys the first cow in the village, hence the title, and they realize that their recipe needs milk uh, to be better. And so they start stealing milk from this cow. 
Uh, and you know it's not going to stay that way forever or else there's no narrative. Right. So you're just waiting for that shoe to drop. And when it does, it's so beautifully done without hyping up the action or hyping up the storyline. It, it's um, this story of this friendship and how it endures and uh, lasts through this really dire time. Uh, and one could easily say, just like a lot of people said about her film, uh, Old Joy, that this was a homoerotic movie, and there's definitely elements of that in their mm-hmm. friendship that remain unspoken, but it's kind of there. Right. But to me, it it transcended that and was just this really interesting, nuanced friendship that we're watching. I love it. I still haven't seen that. I need to see it. What did you think, Michael? I love this movie, and I ag- agree with Glenn in the sense that I, I I'm not even hot and cold uh, with Kelly Record, I've been really just basically cold, and I've gone back every single time. <laughs> I thought you were going to say I'm hot. I love everything she does. I love. <laughs> yeah, you, you gave me a twist there. <laughs> and I, but I keep guys think, thinking, am I am I just wrong about this? Like, I mean, I everybody loves this filmmaker. I don't. I just don't get it. Um, which is, I, I think, on me, probably, but whatever. And But then I finally see this one, and it's smallness, and it's quiet, suddenly connected. And it's also probably the funniest movie that she's made, um, which, when I say that, take that, you know, with a grain of salt, because she's a very serious, you know, poetic filmmaker. Right. Um, but the moment that I love in it is... Uh, the Toby Jones character has another one of his aristocratic friends over and wants to show this guy the, the, the this 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 cow that's in, in in the yard, and they all go out uh, the two those two men and then Cookie and King Lou uh, who are the our two main uh, donut makers. And can I just say I love the fact that somebody made a serious movie about the birth of donuts in in in. America. It's yes, just, I'm on. I, I appreciate that as well. Um, but they go out to see this cow, and the cow turns around or turns its head, almost like looking over its shoulder. And you think, it, and it and it kind of recognizes one of the two thieves. And it's this really great, funny, suspenseful, possibly tragic because they can get killed if if they get found out moment and i and it was just so so brilliantly done um that i i i just i love it i love it all right i have i need to see that one as well uh michael what's another one from your list well so first cow deals in part with in the in the character of king lu with the experience of 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 a chinese person in in the united states in the, in the 19th century so what i'd like to talk about the experience of an asian family in the 20th with uh lee isaac chung's minari uh starring um i think the best cast of of any movie collectively this year i mean everybody's incredible in this movie but steven yoon who was in the movie Burning, which was amazing, and he was also in The Walking Dead, um, plays the the patriarch of this family in the 1970s who moves his family to um, Arkansas in the hopes of starting a, a, a farm and all that that goes into doing that and his their relationships with, with the white Americans around them. Um, 
and the the eventual arrival of uh, his mother-in-law, this grandmother played by, and let me get the name right, uh, Yunyo Jung, uh, who I hope becomes the first uh, Korean actor to win an Oscar um, as the grandmother. And she is this firecracker that that bonds with her grandchildren and and her daughter um, and is very wise um, about not rushing things and, and being able to take things day by day, which the Stephen Yoon character can't do. And what I noticed was that it's a secret disability movie because the grandson has a heart murmur and has a number of other health issues. And the grandmother, most movingly, seems to get it and is not pushing him too hard and it's just letting him be the person that he wants to be. Just let him be a kid. Um, and there's this, there's this moment where, where he wants to run, and, and, but he's afraid to do it because he doesn't want to get sick. And she said, yeah, just, just do, it on, do it on your own. Do it on your own. And then at the very end of the movie, for a different reason, he does end up running. And it's all the more powerful that it pays off in the way that it does. Um, but again, this is another late um, uh, uh, viewing for me, but I love it. And as soon as it's streaming, everyone should see this. Yeah, I haven't gotten to see it yet. But uh, Glenn, what did you think of Minari? Um, I liked it a lot. And one of my moments involves that grandmother who she brings all of the humor to this film. She's fantastic. And I agree with Michael. She deserves the Oscar for this. She's so great. Um, the little son, her little grandson, uh, she asked him to bring her some Mountain Dew. And he's just a little prankster. And he gives her a, a cup of urine instead. And she drinks it by the end. She's like, you know, that just wasn't that bad. Right. She's <laughs> okay with that. All right. <laughs> and she's, a, she's a very original grandma. I love You've it. never seen a grandma quite like this. It's almost like as if the late, great Cloris Leachman inhabited her body and has this really fun, nasty streak. Right. serious immigration story. Um, and I like the movie. I wish I liked it more. I, I like everything that it has to say. And I even like how the title is integrated into the meaning of the film really beautifully. Um, I just, for me, I wish the filmmaking was a little less simple. As it, It's deceptively simple, and I get that. But it feels very Sundancey for me. And if you know what I'm talking about with that trope, it just kind of gives you that very sort of laid-back, kind of artless filmmaking. And I think that it's probably intentional. It wants to be an unfussy film. And it's not very period-specific, even though it's set in the past. Right. And I like that. And, like, it's not forcing anything on you. But it didn't leap out at me in the way that it, I wanted it to, except with that grandma's performance. And Steve Young, who's really exceptional. Yeah. You know, for a year where we didn't get to go to the movies much, there were way more good movies than one might think. So, Glenn, give us another one of yours on your list. Oh, yeah, I think this was a great year. Yeah. And there's a little gem that's uh, on Amazon Prime called The Vast of Night. Okay. Uh, that really blew me away. It's kind of a uh, set in one night in the 1950s in a New Mexico tiny little town. Um, and it's pretty much a two-hander with this young guy who works at a radio station and this young high school uh, woman who uh, works at a uh, phone operator um, as a phone operator. Okay. And they get word from other people and they hear these weird sounds that are coming through their frequencies. And then they hear more from other people calling in. And 
it's kind of an alien invasion story told on a shoestring. And yet it's so beautifully shot. It's got this bravura sequence, a steady cam shot that goes from uh, one of their places all the way through the town to the high school gym and then back to the other person's place. Oh, that wow. A knockout. And you feel like you're kind of watching it maybe through the alien invaders eyes. Nice. It's really incredible. And yet it captures this moment in the fifties where everything technologically was exciting. Um, and there's a moment in the film aside from that shot where they, um, get a hold of a tape recorder and they're just trying it out and interviewing people in cars as, as they walk around. And just the joy of like having this new technology to record things, you know, that we take for granted now is just such a cool moment. Yeah. I like it. I got to check it out. Um, Michael, did you see that movie? Yes. It, it, it is one of the more frustrating movie experiences that I've had um, in the pageant because there are elements of it that I love um, including um, Sierra McCormick's performance, which is the young woman that Glenn's referring to, because it's it's really dialed in to the period um, and to what that type of character would be like in, in a movie that would actually uh, be filmed in the 50s. Um, my, my biggest problem with it is that they use a stylistic... Uh, device in which you are constantly being reminded of a Twilight Zone episode. Okay. That this story is take may or may not be taking place in. And it just kept taking me out of the movie to the, to, and they do it so many times that after a while, it's like, I just can't take this seriously anymore. So when the ending comes around, I was like, eh, all right, that happened. But I will admit that that shot that Glenn's talking about, that they, I guess they did it with like a drone or something. Um, it, it's, it is pretty astounding. I, I just, it. I just wish that the, the script was a little better. All right. Fair enough. Uh, what's another one on your list, Michael? Uh, another one on my list would be uh, Palm Springs. Oh yeah. That's that one's fun. Cows. What's that? That was fun. I like that movie. Love it. And Andy Sierra's script, it's one of my favorites from this year. And Kristen Milioti's performance as one of these two characters, along with Andy Samberg, who are, is stuck in this Groundhog Day-like plot um, uh, at a, a wedding in Palm Springs and how they, 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 they learn to sort of love each other in spite of the trouble that they're having. And at the very end, when they're thinking about finally getting out of the time loop and it's really clever the way they figure that out um they're having doubts about it and and andy sandberg says well you know uh well no i think it's, she actually says well what if we get sick of each other and he says i think we already are but you go anyway and i think that that says a lot about humanity and it right. says a lot about what i miss um, right now, it's just, I, I just, I, I miss being annoyed by more human contact. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I like it. All right, Glenn, what do you think of Palm Springs? Do you have any moments from that movie? Yeah, I kept on, I kept on yeah. arguing with myself over the mechanics of the, how things worked in it. Sure. That took me up a lot, but I enjoyed the performances and the energy. All right, fun. Give us another one from your list. Um, Beanpole. It's a Russian, uh, film right uh, just after world war ii in leningrad uh where um which is now called saint petersburg but at the time was leningrad and it's these two women uh, where we see the story through them 
of struggling to build their lives back. One of them has been at war and just returned, and the other one is working at a hospital and has been taking care of the child, the son of the one who's been at war. And so um, there's a scene early on in the film, it's the inciting incident of the movie, and without giving up too much away, um, she's playing with her friend's son on the floor of her apartment, and she's prone to seizures, and we learn that in the opening moment of the film. She, she seizes quite a bit, and she has a seizure while she's playing with this kid, and this incredibly playful moment turns into a jaw-dropping scene that the tone switches on a dime, and you're watching it all in a single shot, and it's absolutely breathtaking. This is not a film I recommend anybody watch uh, that uh, doesn't like depressing films because it's really depressing. Right. Uh, but it's spectacularly visually told and acted. Uh, it's It really does give you a unique look at World War II from a completely different perspective. So, Michael, give us another one from your list. Kitty Green's The Assistant. Oh, yeah. Um, starring the brilliant Julia Garner, um, who plays an assistant at a Miramax-like uh, film production company in New York who uncovers a, a, a Me Too situation in which uh, the producer that she, that she works for is, is having uh, relations with some of the talent. Um, and she finally decides to stick her courage to the, to the sticking place, screw her courage to the sticking place, and go to Human Resources, uh, embodied by Matthew McFadden. And... At first, he takes her very, very seriously, and she's relieved. And then he basically talks her out of reporting it. And I don't want to say why or how he does it, but you, you get the sense that oh, this this is this is how this is able to keep going is because there's people protecting these terrible men. And even though there are women that are being courage, courageous, they they have too much of a mountain to climb to to, to get to safety. Yeah. It was one of the last films I saw in the theater, too. And I just love that it was told through this, you know, new hire that's the lowest person in the office, probably, on the pay scale. And what she has to do and the mundane parts of the day. And just that that's a big part of her day is managing this uh, horrible behavior. And somehow she has to take it on in a way. What did you think, Len? I loved how the film didn't spoon feed you anything. You had to figure out what was going on. Yeah. Sometimes you don't know, and that's okay because you're watching it from her point of view where she's not privy to anything. Yeah, it's a day in her life. The opening moments of that scene is my moment where she has just arrived at the office before everybody else and is tidying up from the night before in her boss's office, and he's never seen, but you imagine he's kind of like a Harvey Weinstein type. Right. And obviously he had a lot to drink, there's a lot of stuff strewn all over his office and she puts on some rubber gloves and she Lysol's the hell out of the couch and wipes it down. And you got to figure out what that meant. And it's chilling. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, give us another moment at a time, Glenn. Um, I'm going to do two quickies in one. I love uh, it. Cause Hotfest, the LGBT plus uh, film festival here in Los Angeles had a stellar year and it was all done online. And there were a couple of films that really stood out that I think are amongst the year's best. And I hope people get a chance to see them hopefully this year when they, fingers crossed, get distributed. Uh, one is called Drama Rama, and it's about a bunch of 
uh, theater nerds in high school who get together for a mystery theater evening of frivolity. And then it breaks down those people and you get to see the sort of tough stuff underneath all of that. Yeah, I and loved it. I saw that. Yeah. It's a beautiful film and it's so well acted. And I call it the um, the not coming out film of the year. Right. it's not about coming out. It's about the complete opposite. Yeah. And that's a fascinating point of view. And then the other one is called Two Eyes. Uh, Travis Fine, who... Uh, people will know from the other film called uh, Any Day Now. Right. With Alan. Uh, this is his follow-up, and it takes place over three different centuries. Um, and it's a film about gender identity through the years and how the uh, experiences of people in the 1800s impacts the people in the 1970s, impacts the people today. And it's all there's a through line there that I think is so beautifully done. Um, and it's shot as beautifully as a Terrence Malick film. I think it's gorgeously beautifully shot and it also just got to me emotionally where when it ties together and there's that aha moment that some people will see coming others won't i just bawled and i thought uh-huh. that this is a thoroughly committed beautiful performance where they sum up what every unevolved person ever says about people of different gender identities about how where they'll complain about how it's complicated and I can't keep the pronouns straight. How am I supposed it's to do so this? It's so hard for me to think so about. And the one character complains about it and the other character, he just says, you know, this is really um, confusing, I think he says. And the other character goes, no, no, it's not. Yeah. And that's it. There's no more conversation need to be had. And I thought that was a great way to just sort of crystallize that argument. Yeah, I love it. Michael, what's next on your list? I will do two, um, two together um, to, to speed this along. Uh, one you've definitely seen, I think, and the other one you surely probably haven't. Um, the first one is called Crip Camp, a documentary that's on Netflix, um, which is subtitled The Disability Revolution. It's directed by Jim Lebrecht and Nicole uh, Noonan. And it's basically about this camp a summer camp up in uh near woodstock in new york which is a camp for kids with disabilities and it starts out where they they introduce these kids through a film crew that's there almost like the the mazels brothers um and it's very sort of uh cinema verite and you're just taking in the experience of these these kids having this great time at this camp but then you slowly begin to learn about their 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 thoughts and desires about the world and and they they slowly start to emerge and then eventually go on to being the kind of first wave in the late 70s of of the disability rights movement that would later um lead to the americans with disabilities act um and there's a moment in it um where a character named nancy as a teenager um is trying to express something i believe she has cerebral very profound cerebral palsy so she has trouble speaking and um she says something but then the filmmakers need a new translator so they get another one of the, the campers to help out and basically she's saying that she 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 wants to be understood um and that is sort of the, the the larger framework for my life and for a lot of other people's lives within this community, which is that if it would just take people a little bit to sit down and actually get what we're what we need and what we want out of life, um, 
if we were listened to more, things would be a lot easier for everybody across the board because we need things like universal design on buildings and things like that and access because it helps everybody. It helps the entire society. And there, then the problem is basically communication breakdowns. Um, so I don't think it's a perfect movie, um, but I do think it is in, in some ways a very essential one. And it's another one that everybody really should see. And it's on Netflix. So you don't have any excuses. There you go. And you said you had another one. And another one, which I just saw and I was really over the moon about, is this movie called Run. Have you heard of this? No. It's with Sarah Paulson and a new actress who's a wheelchair user herself, authentically, uh, named Kira Allen. And she's playing this young girl in a wheelchair on the verge of going to college who, just, who, who begins to suspect that her mother has some very dark purposes for her. Um, and it gets darker and scarier and creepier as it, as it goes along. Um, but it's all done authentically. It's really the experience of what a person in a wheelchair has to go through in terms of getting in and out of spaces quickly and, and hiding and all this sorts of stuff that you would normally find in, in, in your run-of-the-mill thriller. And it is run-of-the-mill, but that's almost kind of revolutionary in a way that we can, we can, we can, it, this movie proves without a doubt that that people with disabilities have just as much of a right to to sort of mainstream Hollywood narratives as anybody else. And what's most significant is that Kira Allen's performance. She is the first actor since nineteen, the first actress in a lead role who uses a wheelchair since nineteen forty eight. Oh my god! Uh, with, with a movie called uh, The Sign of the Ram with Susan Peters. So, 60 long time coming. Years? Yep. Wow. wow. It's amazing. on Hulu. I just added it to my list. All right. Good. Um, Glenn, you have another moment out of time? Yeah. Also, um, on HBO Max streaming currently, when we were talking about documentaries earlier, I did leave this one out because this is neck and neck with Collective for me as one of the best. Is Welcome to Chechnya. Yeah, that's on and my list. It's um, the, the torture and genocide of uh, LGBT people, particularly gay men, in Chechnya, which is going on right now as we're talking, um, is horrifying. And there is a group of Russian civilians uh, who kind of quit their day job to help people escape. Um, and just yesterday, two people who escaped Chechnya uh, were turned back around by the Russian authorities and brought back and taken by the Chechnyan police. And God only knows what's happening to oh them. Oh, my God. Right yeah, they, they could be tortured or dead by now, for all I know. Um, and it's horrifying. And this incredibly brave um, uh, team went there, snuck in cameras, pretended they were shooting tourist stuff, and smuggled out this footage that is so horrifying and immediate to watch. And what technologically they've done that is astounding, to protect the innocent, um, the uh, people... Uh, who are impacted by this, the LGBT community that are escaping, they've altered their face so that they've got a different face on their head. Right. And there's a moment in the movie where one of those people, however, attends a press conference to testify about what happened to him. So you're watching this going, well, if he testified in front of the world press, and he doesn't really need to hide his face, right? Right. And... All of a sudden, you're watching the press conference, and the CGI melts away from his face, and you see the real person. 
And it is the most astounding act of bravery I've seen in a documentary or just anywhere in so long. Just the, 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 the guts that it took for right. that person to do that. I and, watched it, it and I thought, oh, this is what courage is, what, this, yes. what these people are doing. Um, and I guess that the, the faces that were put on them, the, the ones that weren't theirs, were activists uh, from New York, I read. Yes. So, yes. Which I, I think is another cool element to it. But I agree. It was probably the best doc I saw this year. And this, it just moves. The suspense. You're just like, it, it's, it's shocking and horrifying, but it just sucks you in. Did um, you see it, Michael? Yeah. I didn't, but again, it's another one. Be- because of your effusiveness, it's, yeah. it's high on my list. you got to check it out. All right. What's next for you, Michael? I want to talk about one of my other favorite documentaries of, of the year, which is Time, uh, which was on, uh, it was on Amazon Prime. Right. I've been and... seeing that on a lot of best lists. And I, it took me a, a, a minute to get into it um, because it, 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 again, it's not one of these movies that really handholds. It just kind of drops you in the middle of this situation in which a woman by the name of Sybil Richardson um, is advocating to get her husband's 60-year uh, prison sentence in New Orleans reduced and and then have him eventually freed. He goes in for 20 years, and they're hoping that that will be um, an, enough. And uh, it's it's the a black family, and she she spends a lot of time calling the courthouse, um, trying to get answers about the appeal and never gets them. And you spend, there are like three or four separate phone calls where we, as the audience, just sit in silence and watch her just sit on hold. And it's, it's, it, it just strikes you how deeply unfair and unjust the justice system is to people of color. And they, they, they want to show up and do the right thing and nobody wants to listen and then my moment in that is there's a there's 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 a there's a scene in which she she gets one of these n- n- nothing phone call nothing responses from the courthouse right. hangs up the phone and then finally loses her shit and it's this really cathartic moment but it's also like she's still trapped in it yeah yeah um but it's 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 an amazing thing and also there's a thing about the end but if you guys haven't seen it I don't want to give it away yeah. But it, but the 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 title is is perfect um, because it deals with with what we do with the time that's given us, and it made me think about everything that's that's happened in terms of what what we're all going through and how how we're going to be on the other side of things, and how beautiful it is just to be able to see people again and, and all of that, and and to hold on to that. I love it. This one has not been heralded very much. And I don't think it's a great film, but there's a great moment in it. And I like using examples of that. Um, it's called I Am Woman. It's the Helen Reddy biopic. Right. Which is currently streaming, I think, on HBO Max um, or Netflix. I can't remember right now. But, uh, you know, this is a biopic about a famous singer, and it kind of goes through the usual motions. But when she records her first single, um, she's not having an easy time of it. She doesn't feel like she's herself. And her coke-addicted husband slash manager isn't helping matters much, pressuring her in the studio. And then he finally lovingly comes up to her and just convinces her to try the other song, which is going to be the B-side to the single, 
and is I Don't Know How to Love Him, which is from Jesus Christ Superstar. Right. became her first big hit, and she uh, just relaxes while he's doing coke outside this, you know, and she's kind of like, I'm going to put a pin in that. Like, I know right. that's going to boost you later. But she just relaxes into the song, and apparently she did her own singing along with another singer, and they kind of blended it together. And instead of lip-syncing it, it becomes this really natural way to present this recording that was, it was uncanny to me that it really was moving and it made you think this is why she was a superstar. Yeah. I love my Helen Reddy. I had those albums back in the day. All right. I definitely need to check it out. Um, what's next for you, Michael? Uh, Miranda July's Kajillionaire, um, which is this wonderful, weird, loopy, sad, angry, dark, bright, all, all the things uh, L.A. con artist family movie, and it's it stars this this incredible incredible performance from Evan Rachel Wood as this the this daughter in this family who is really socially maladjusted um, and is trying to figure her way through the world. And it's interesting because apparently she patterned the character off of Edward Scissorhands. And you can totally see it. Okay. Um, if you think about it. I love it. Um, and there's this wonderful moment um, in it where uh, they go into this Mark's house and they, it's a dying guy. And but the guy thinks that it's the family there that it's meant to sort of re- recapture life for him. And so they start pretending like they're actually a real family having a real time Sunday morning type of moment. And it really pleases Evan Rachel Wood, and you see her almost about to smile, and you see her coming to life in a way. And I think it's such a beautiful, powerful moment. I love it. I love it. I like Miranda July's past movie, so I need to check it out. All right, yeah. Glenn, what do you got? That, it's my favorite of her films by far. I think it's a great, great film. Um, next, this one's for you, Dennis, because you're the one who turned me on to this film. And again, not a great movie. It's very commercial, um, yet it has a great beauty to it, which is uh, called The High Note. That's on my list. It's a good Meltdown movie. It's a movie that you would have seen at a mall. Like it, It's the movie that gives you the pleasure of going to movies but back before covid it upends the trope of a superstar singer right. playing Tracy Ellis Ross appropriately with her superstar mother in reality um, and Dakota Johnson as her personal assistant. And it tells the story of the sisterhood that builds between these two people. And instead of going the usual route of a diva being horrible, Tracy Ellis Ross's character is not. She's actually a really good person. Yet she, there's still stakes and there's still drama but she is reasonable. She's not crazy. And I right. love that about the film. And it builds to this moment between the two of them looking at each other where it's been telegraphed earlier in the film in the opening scene where Dakota Johnson likes to close her eyes when she's hearing music and it takes her and transports her to a better place. And she does it at the end. Um, and this isn't spoiling anything. It's just the look they give between each other. And then, Trace, and then Dakota Johnson closes her eyes and goes to whatever that place is, and then opens it up again and looks lovingly at Tracy Ellis Ross, and it just fades out from there, and it's a gorgeous ending. It it was unexpected how gorgeous that ending was. Yeah, I'm glad you liked it. I'm glad you liked it. All right, what's next for you, Michael? Uh, the next one for me is Blow the Man Down, uh, which is Bridget Savage Cole and Danielle Crudy's uh, 
Amazon Prime, how do I describe this? Uh, New England film noir takes place in a fishing village in, in Maine in which these two sisters who have just lost their mother uh, get involved in a murder plot and then another body shows up and they have to figure out how to get out from under this. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a town that's ruled by women, none more so than Margot Martindale, uh, who plays the, 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 the owner of a brothel. Um, who really has the grip uh, on on the town. But the other older women, some played by Annette O'Toole and June Squibb, uh, confront Margot Martindale in a hair salon um, to see if they can wrestle power away. And it does not happen. And she's incredible in this movie. And it's this is one of the most entertaining and, and weirdest and wildest movies that I saw last year. I love it. It wasn't even, I'd never heard of it at all. Um, it's on Amazon Prime. It's terrific. All right, cool. Uh, Glenn, do you have uh, another one? The Personal History of David Copperfield. So Armando Inucci, for people who love Veep, um, he's the creator of Veep. He and Simon Blackwell adapted Charles Dickinson's, his admittedly favorite novel. Dickens loved this novel the most of everything he wrote because uh, it's very autobiographical. And you see the elements of all of his other films, I mean, his, all, his novels in this one. You see class struggles, all of, like Oliver Twist, and you, you you know, you see a little bit of Tales of Two City, Tale of Two Cities in there. Um, but uh, this one is a multicultural look at this story, which adds immeasurably to the film. And it still has Inucci's trademark savagery to it, yet there's more heart than usual from him. And I think it's a really great blend because it's got some amazing off-the-cuff crazy one-liners that just kept me laughing throughout. But it's the journey of a writer trying to find his voice while struggling throughout his life. And it's just beautiful. It's really fast-moving. It probably, you know, it clearly pairs down the book to its essentials. But uh, it gets to the end, and it, there's this RuPaul's Drag Race moment on it. Where <laughs> David Copperfield, as an adult, gets to talk to his younger self. And it's as if RuPaul is holding up a picture of his right. younger self. What advice would you give your little self? And he gives some advice that made me cry. Oh, beautiful. I love Deb Patel. I, I, yeah. I think he's hot and I'm into him. This right. movie, I, I need to see it. Gotten, it. It's gotten forgotten, I think, in the heap. And yeah. uh, it's, it, it's really worth checking out. All right. What do you got, Michael? Okay. So, real quick. Uh, Miss Americana, the Taylor Swift documentary that's on uh, Netflix that Loved uh, it. Lana Wilson did. I'm do not Swiftie. care one whit about Taylor Swift. Not at all. Right. Um, but this really made me see her as not only a human being, which is obnoxious, but made me <laughs> see her as a genuinely talented individual who really knows what she's doing. Right. And who was just stuck in this messed up world. And the, and the example of that is the, my favorite moment is when she does that meet and greet with the couple that, that the guy proposes to her. And Taylor Swift is just kind of standing there awkwardly trying to have a human moment but can't do it. Right. So I love that. Um, on the Rocks, Sofia Coppola's middle-aged comedy, I care everything about Bill Murray, and the scene where he talks his way out of a ticket is one of his great moments. So I love that. I need to see it. Um, what's that? I need to see it. Yes, it's wonderful. I seen it. Um, Freaky, which is Christopher Landon's, uh, movie body switch horror movie with uh vince vaughn uh who plays a serial killer who switches bodies with a with a 17 year old girl in fact it was supposed to be called freaky friday the 13th which is a much better title yes um and there's a wonderful scene 
where Vince Vaughn is in the backseat of a car with uh, already possessed by the girl who's talking, who, who's talking to the boy that she likes. Um, and they have this wonderful interaction with each other. So it's worth it just for that. And then finally, um, uh, two disgusting horror movies, Color Out of Space, which was Nicolas Cage going crazy with alpacas. It's Richard Stanley's long-awaited follow-up. I, I, it's beautiful and it's disturbing and it's, and it's amazing and it offers a corrective to H.P. Lovecraft's uh, racist tendencies. So that's great. All right. And then finally... And then finally, Brandon Cronenberg's Possessor, the uncut version. And all I'll say is Christopher Abbott is playing this character who is being possessed by a secret agent. His body is being controlled by um, uh, Andrea Riceborough. Don't want to get into how that's possible, but it is in this movie. <laughs> um, but he basically, he's, he's meant to assassinate someone. And the moment I have has to do with Sean Bean and his mouth, and it's one of the most disgusting things that I saw all year. I will, I will second that. <laughs> I love this. Just every sentence that you said sounded like bonkers. So um, I know, I know, Michael, you have your big number one. Glenn, do you have any more movies you want to share? No, but I do want to just say that he talked about alpacas and Sean Bean's mouth in right. the same paragraph. There you go. <laughs> I, there's a couple that didn't come up that are on my list of things I like. Uh, both gay films, Monsoon and I Carry You With Me. And I Carry with You With Me is about um, a couple from Mexico, a gay couple who who immigrates to the United States illegally, but it does something really amazing narratively that kind of knocked me off my chair, and I don't want to give more away than that, but it's, it's beautiful. Um, I agree. It's a terrific, crazy, interesting hybrid of a film. Yeah, absolutely. And now, Michael, you're number one. Well, wait, the other one you were saying was Monsoon. Monsoon with Henry Golding. Coming to Netflix next month, and I I recommend that highly. It's kind of just lyrical and, for you know, set in a... Is it Thailand? I don't know. I just felt like I got to go somewhere. In Vietnam. Yeah, Vietnam. That's right. He goes to Vietnam. Um, But, yeah, it's it's beautiful. um, All right, Michael, you're number one. Okay. So, I have seen a lot of movies this year, and it's been really, really frustrating because I keep wondering about the planet and our place in it and where we've been and where we're all going. Um, But for about 90 minutes, I felt that we were going to be okay because I saw Victor Kosakovsky's Gunda which is an experiential documentary about a Norwegian farm uh, in which we watch the lives of mainly pigs, but also um, horses, or sorry, cows, and one spectacular one-legged chicken. Now, the reason that this movie means so much to me, apart from the fact that animals is the thing I love second only to movies, is that... Like I said, I, it, it made me feel like we were going to, to be okay. And that even that there's a reason for everything happening may not be a very good reason, but we are all connected. And that bears out in the final shot, which I think runs for about 12 and a half minutes. And I won't tell you what happens in it, but it involves a truck, some piglets, and then Gunda, uh, the, the mother pig, 
is is in the f- the final shot. Um, it is one of the most heartbreaking moments in that movie that I have ever seen. But it's also one of the most beautiful because I thought, I know what that feels like. I know what it feels like to be separated from from loved ones, to have to have circumstances and fate standing in your way and having to deal with it anyway. And 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 the fact that, that you, you're able to connect with something that ostensibly is a lower life form means that there's a there is a much greater purpose, I think, to the universe, but also to our suffering. And I don't know what that is necessarily, but I have a feeling that it has to do with being with other people and how other people push us along. Because the other moment in this movie that means so much to me was Gunda is is out of her pen and her little piglets are are, are, are jumping around and having a good old time. And there's one that seems to have a gamey leg and he gets run down by his brothers and sisters and he's sort of disoriented and Gunda comes and pushes him to his feet and he falls again and pushes him to his feet again. And he keeps him going. He keeps him going. He says, no, this is what you have to do. And they're not, they're not talking, they're not anthropomorphized in any way, but it's, it's, it's necessary that we keep each other going. So here's the point of why I wanted to save this. Glenn Gaylord's great gift to the world is his ability to show up for people, but he does that for me more than anybody else. And he has called or kept in contact with me almost every single day since we've been in quarantine. Every single day. And sometimes it's it's really just to talk about movies or to talk about how great his film reviews titles are. But... <laughs> he loves those titles. He's good at that. He really does. He really does. <laughs> and it, but it's 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 enough for me, and and it, and it is sustaining. And I just I just want you to know how important you are, and you are too, Dennis. And and how important it is to keep doing this, because because we need to to to, to keep going. <clears throat> well, thank you. you. We love you, and you're a very special person. So That's it's not beautiful. a chore to call you. <laughs> um, so, it's yeah, a total pleasure. In fact, I'm knocked out. No, tell the name of that movie again. Is it G U N D A? Yeah, Gunda. And Gunda. unfortunately, it's not streaming yet. But I think it will be in in the next month or so. Okay, Glenn, have now, you seen it? Yeah. Now, Michael and I we we differ a little bit on this film. I I totally understand and appreciate what he has to say about it. Yeah, for sure. It was a struggle for me for a ridiculous reason to get through it. And that is... No milk reason- duds? You didn't have well, any milk? I, I, you I were out of have- milk duds? Well, what? Were you out of milk duds? Was that the struggle? No. No. I, I, I think I need to get some uh, headphones to watch movies because my dog cannot handle movies that have ambient nature sounds on them. It <laughs> happened um, with Honeyland last year, and it took me six or seven times of watching Gunda... Uh, to get through it because she would, she convulses, she hides under the bed, she squeals, she hates it so much. Yeah. And so I didn't want to torture her. So it took a long time for me to get through the film. And which is why I miss watching films in theaters because right. I could have just watched this in 90 minutes and gotten it over with. Right. Um, it's an incredibly beautifully shot black and white film that has 
filmmaking technique that your jaw drops watching some of these uh, uh, scenes. Uh, I there are I don't think it's perfect. I think that we it meanders a little bit when it's not talking about the pigs, but uh, and I never really quite got that the pig's name was Gunda, but that's another story. There you go. <laughs> Um, but uh, but I get it. It's 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 not my favorite. I, I'm not jumping up and down over it. Yet I get exactly what Michael's talking about with this the the, the existential questions that are brought up in this film. Well, it sounds beautiful. And maybe Sydney just didn't want you to fall in love with any other animals. Maybe it was a jealousy move, a ter- gonna territorial to, move. I'm gonna have to rethink my dog. Yeah. Um, it's so fun to talk to you guys about movies every year. I hope that we get to do, uh, see movies in person again soon. Um, I just saw a movie on Sundance that is a little sneak preview for next year. It's called The Pink Cloud. It's from Brazil. And it's about, this pink cloud appears in the sky and kills people within 10 seconds. And so everybody goes inside and the whole rest of the movie is in quarantine. And they shot it and conceived it before covid and it's this man and this woman are together and they had just had a one night stand. They just met and now they're together. And so there's, you know, zoom screens and it's so much of the things that we've all been dealing with. And it was done before, before any of this happened. It's, and yet uh, it's still kind of, I would call it pink bird box. Yeah, a little bit for sure. So keep an eye out for that. But it was really, um, it's interesting how the quor- the quarantine and, and the pandemic have changed movies that we've seen because I saw this movie, Breaking Fast, a gay movie. We had them on the podcast a few weeks ago, right before quarantine, because I was going to interview them. And the, we had to cancel the interview because of COVID. And then it just came out on VOD, and I, and I rewatched it. And it was like, oh, going around West Hollywood and seeing friends and hugging friends. Oh, cooking and eating around a table. It was like all of these pleasures that we just haven't had. And it's just different how, how our current situation changes the meaning of things that we see. So anyway, yeah, I, I watched Lauren Ambrose beat the shit out of somebody on the series servant. Right. And Sean's Apple TV plus series. Right. And I tell us, I'm like, Oh my God, she got to touch somebody and beat them up. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you guys so much. Is there any way that people can follow what you do or anything you want to plug before we sign off? Read my reviews at the Right on. I love it. And, uh, Michael, anything you want to share about the festival or anything? Uh, we're doing it virtual again this year, uh, even if we're out of quarantine by October. Right. Um, because it just seemed to work and it was less overhead. Um, so I don't, it, I don't have any, uh, any juicy bits to add because we haven't gotten any of the film selections yet, but, uh, it'll, it'll, it'll happen. I love it. All right. Well, thanks you guys. I look forward to seeing you somehow, some way soon. And, uh, thanks for sharing your, your passion and your love for movies. Bye. Bye. Thanks again to Glenn and Michael for their awesome takes on movies. Um, I got a lot of things I need to see now. So this happened, I've been enjoying the drive-in situation in Los Angeles. There's a, um, a drive-in in Glendale put together by the Electric Dusk Drive-In, partnering with Secret Movie Club, who I'm a huge fan of, Craig Hamill over there. And I saw Eternal Sunshine at the drive-in. I saw The Thing, which I'd never seen at the drive-in. It was really good. And now there's a new drive-in opening in Santa Monica, and I have tickets to see um, Minari there. 
So anyway, that's something. All right, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye.